Good morning, everybody. So before we talk about our psalm, before we talk about Christ, I want to talk about us. Uh, We are by nature complainers, are we not? I mean, what's wrong makes a greater impact on us than what's right. So much to be thankful for. Yeah, right now I want to complain that the fan keeps blowing my pages around. So if you guys see that, know it's bothering me too. But case in point, we will do it. We don't need big reasons to complain. There's nothing to watch on TV. This drive through takes too long. The sun is too hot. The pool is too cold. A lot of first world problems. Uh, we're basically Goldilocks. This is too hot. This is too cold. But it's never just right for too long. There's always something else to complain about. And that's why this psalm this morning should speak to us. And I think it will. Because when we have big things that come in our lives, we tend to complain as well. Whether it be a pandemic or whether it be for the psalmist, the fall of Jerusalem and the dethroning of a king. But far too often it gives people cause to complain, but also question God's faithfulness. And so this morning I want us to think about what do we do When our faith and our feelings are in conflict. What do we do when our theology and our circumstances seem contrary? And what, if anything, does this have to do with the Resurrection Sunday? And so you ask, Pastor Tim, how are you going to pull all this together with Psalm 89? Let's hope I do. Uh, Before we read our passage, I want to share a quote from Mark Furtado in his commentary on Deuteronomy. This is my Hebrew professor, very wise, uh, spent a lot of times in the Psalms, written on the Psalms extensively. But I like what he says about this Psalm because it's going to set us up well for this morning. He says, perhaps no other Psalm can bring us as much balm to the soul as does this one. The balm is brought in part by the freedom this Psalm grants to be brutally honest with ourselves and with God in admitting the deep doubts we have at times. Doubts that God is faithful, that God is love. When faith and experience conflict, pretending that all is well will not do. Denial lacks integrity and indicates shallow spirituality. Honest wrestling is the path to growth and the path to God. And this is what we like to do here. We like to do honest wrestling and wrestle with the text. And we are going to wrestle with the psalmist this morning. When, when my, my faith and my feelings seem to, con- seem to contradict one another. So if you would, open your Bibles to Psalm 89 for me. And this is our third message in the series. We're going to close out the psalm this morning. Psalm 89, beginning in verse 38. But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of the sword and you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You have cut short the days of his youth and you have covered him with shame. How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? 
Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of men. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? Lord, where is your steadfast love of old? Which by your faithfulness you swore to David. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked. And how I bear in my heart the insults of all the many nations. With which your enemies mock, O Lord. With which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you in all circumstances. How often so many of us have prayed like this. Why, Lord? How long? What are you doing, Lord? I thought you were good. I thought you were faithful. It doesn't feel like it right now. Lord, assure us that you are good. You are faithful. You are true. Our circumstances do not dictate your sovereignty. Help us with the psalmist to say, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Our God who is the same yesterday, today and tomorrow. He is unchanging. Our God who is Father, Son and Spirit perfectly in one. Our God who is before time and yet created time and and works in time. Our God who created all things and sustains all things. Our God who works mighty miracles. And works in the weakness of the human heart. A God whose good news goes out to the nations and it is your news that transforms hearts and minds. And we pray that this morning, that your spirit would work within your people to stir us and encourage us. That your spirit would work in your people who are dormant and bring them to life for the, new, for the first time. Give them a heart of flesh. Break that heart of stone that they may follow you and serve you. Lord, I pray for your church during this time, that we would be a faithful people, that we would look to the cross, that we would look to our salvation, finished and accomplished on our behalf. That we would celebrate our Savior who took on flesh for us, lived the life we could not live, that we might have life in him, died the death we should have died, so that our sins might die and we might live in righteousness with him. And the eternal life that he accomplished through the blood of his covenant. And the fulfillment that the promises made to David were not in vain. The promises made to Israel were not in vain. We share in the inheritance of the faithful who came before us. That we would stand firm in the promises of our God. The great I am who does not change. Lord, we praise you and we honor you. That you would be glorified in all that we say and do this morning. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. So we're going to do this morning, do a few things. One, we're going to give an overview of verses 38 to 52, not spend as much time in it as we normally do. Uh, And then we're going to look at a few details of this complaint in light of Christ. Then the third thing we're going to do is we're going to give the answer in Matthew's gospel. And so this is going to be a transitional message, a transition from the Psalms and the overthrowing of a king. And the uncertainty that was in the minds of Israel when the psalm was written. To the risen king. And the assurance and the certainty that we have in Jesus Christ. So this psalm this morning is still about God's covenant faithfulness. But we're going to see God's promise and fulfillment in the person and work of Jesus Christ. 
But before we do that, we have to put ourselves in the mind of the psalmist. Because historically, this is the worst time in Israel's history. And it's hard to see how any hope of God's promises could be kept. The king is overthrown. He's humiliated. Jerusalem's walls are broken down. The city is in disarray. The enemies are laughing and rejoicing because Israel has been overthrown. And the psalm in our latter portion here has such a somber and sad tone. But it's so short-sighted. We have to be careful. Psalmist didn't have the hindsight that we do, the clarity of being able to look back. But if he only knew what the Lord is doing, if he only knew what the Lord has planned, this is an important reminder for them and for us, because in one moment in history, it's very difficult to see what, what God is doing. You can't stand in one second and see God's redemptive unfolding plan throughout all of history. It's like trying to see a road trip by standing in your driveway. It's not going to happen. We are limited to one moment in one time, and we are slaves to thinking that that's all there is. But our God is beyond time. To our God, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. Our God created time. So we have to be careful when we impose our limitations on an eternal God. And so we have to remember when we pick up in verse 38 that for the first 37 verses, he has praised God's faithfulness again and again. You are the God of steadfast love. You are the God who is faithful forever. You are the God who keeps his promises. And I think this is intentional on behalf of the psalmist. He's reminding God, okay, God, I want you to remember you're the faithful God. You're the God who keeps promises. And you're the God whose covenant is sure forever. Because right now, doesn't feel like it. He begins with, but now. Everything I said before is true, and I believe it. But now it feels a little different. But now you have cast us off. There's doubt and fear in this present situation. Anyone else ever been there? Anyone else ever known in your mind that God is great and God is steadfast and God is true and God is unchanging. But it sure feels like you changed. It sure feels like you forgot. Or could it be that we just forgot verses 1 through 37? We just forgot God's covenant faithfulness. We were too short-sighted. We let our doubts and our fears control what we know about God. And I think this is, if we can be honest, this is where many people find themselves themselves now. And their jobs are uncertain. Their health is uncertain. The economy is uncertain. How could any good ever come from this? Could God possibly be working? But not us. This should not be us. We need to always have a hope and a reason to declare that hope. That God is always working, God is always teaching, God is always correcting, God is always redeeming. And that is exactly what he's doing right now. We will look back and we'll see, ah, I see how God was removing the idols in my life, the idols of comfort, the idols of routine, the idols of everything else. How God taught me through this, how God taught his church. And that is what I am praying. In this season of uncertainty and in this season of doubt, we will rest in God's plan, trust in his plan, that this is not by accident. Everything he is doing is for his glory and our good. But it's up to us to submit to that 
And so let's pick up in our text in verse 38. It says here, but now you have cast off and rejected. I want you to see the repetition here. You have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath. You have renounced the covenant. You have breached his walls. You have laid his strongholds in the ruins. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have turned back the edge of the sword. You have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor cease. You have cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. In verses 1 through 37, he rightly gives all the credit, all the praise, and all the glory to God. And when things, goes, when things go wrong, he recognizes that God does not cease to be sovereign when things don't go as he's planned. God is still in control of all things. God gets all the credit. Yet, the irony that we're going to see in this passage, what he accuses God of doing to the covenant king, he is actually fulfilling one day in the true king. What he accuses God against doing against David's biological son, he will fulfill in David's true son, the son of God, the son of man, the true son of David. And so I want to walk through this and see if any of this rings a bell when we think about our Savior and what he did for us. Verse 38, but now you have cast off and rejected. He was rejected by men. His people sent him to the cross. For a moment, Christ the man was cast off by God. You remember his words from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was rejected and cast off by his Father. So that, the second half of this verse, the wrath of God that is poured out on his unfaithful anointed in the time of the psalmist is poured out on the faithful anointed. So that the covenant could be fulfilled in him. Rejected by God, the full measure of his wrath poured out on him. And in the very same thought, it seems like the covenant with David is renounced. But yet by that rejection and by that wrath, it is fulfilled in the person of Christ. And if you see here in verse 39, you have renounced the covenant with your servant. It is the servant of the Lord, Isaiah 42 Fulfilled in Christ. It is the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Fulfilled in Christ. He is the one who is indeed rejected. Indeed poured out the wrath of God upon. But also the covenant fulfillment. It is him, the son, the covenant keeper, the covenant maker. Let's continue on. You have breached his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. His walls, his stronghold, his very body, his temple was placed in ruins. This temple was broken down. But it did not stay that way. It would be built back up. Verse 31, all who pass by plunder him. Oh, we know that the soldiers cast lots for his garments. They took all of his worldly possessions. And he became the scorn of his neighbors. People walked by and mocked him. Those on the crosses next to him mocked him. The Jews mocked him. The Romans mocked him. And you have exalted the right hand of his foes, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Look like they won. Look like they were exalted. And they indeed rejoiced. They celebrated that their enemy was on the cross. That their power could be kept in their hand. You also turned back the edge of the sword. You have not made him stand in battle. He could have. 
He told Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, I would bring down legions of angels and you would see the power of my heavenly hosts. But he did not stand in battle. He had to go to the cross. And the sword that was turned against the king of Israel in the psalmist day. Jesus turned back in Peter's hand. Peter wanted to go to battle. But he told him to put his sword away. This was not the time for battle. This is the time for sacrifice. I must do this. I must take this cup. You do not want this cup to pass over me. We go on. You have made his splendor to cease and cast his throne to the ground. You, God himself, God the Son, took his own splendor, his own crown, and he cast it down. He deserved to be reigning in glory forever. Sitting at the right hand of the Father, all power and dominion are his. Yet he voluntarily gave it up and humbled himself. Did not count equality with God something to be grasped for us. You have cut short the days of his youth. Jesus died a young man in his early 30s. You had covered him with shame. He did not die the king he should have. He died in shame. The most shameful and painful method of death that man has ever created. Hanging on a cross, helpless, lifeless, and bloody. Thankfully, that is not the end of the story. And as the psalmist puts a salah in here, we must take a breather as well. Because everything he accuses God of and sees wrong with God's plan, the irony is that his very people, the ones he's trying to intercede for, did to God in the flesh. Everything that we see here that he accuses God of, they were guilty of hating him, becoming his enemy. They were guilty of rejecting him, scorning him, shaming him, and killing him. The answer to their very complaint, the son that he's trying to intercede for, Israel themselves rejected. So as we move on to our next section, picking up in verse 46, he asks a series of questions. He's pleading with God urgently. How long, oh Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will, you, will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. Isn't this the way? We want to see things in our lifetime. Just like the psalmist did. How short my time is. God, do something so I can see it. We so selfishly want to see God do things in our time because we are impatient. But God works in his time. He's not constrained by ours. And so as the psalmist speaks about his own limitations. He wrongly assumes that God shares those limitations. And then this line here, for what vanity you have created all the children of man. Why did you even create us if you're going to let us suffer like this? Anyone ever been there? Anyone ever called out to God and said, God, why did you even make me? I feel so broken and hurt and disappointed right now. Why am I even alive? And it's so short-sighted. Remember, we can't see all of God's plan in the moment of our lives. And we have to be careful not to be slaves to the present. 
Not to be slaves to the immediate and assume that this feeling we're feeling right now and everything that's going on right now is all there is and all there ever will be. That is why it's so important that we understand the nature of our God. He is eternal before and after time. He is unchanging. He is almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing. So that when we feel helpless, we feel powerless, we don't have answers. We feel limited. We know that he is not. And if we rest in him, that is where our assurance lies, not in our circumstances. The psalmist continues, and many times we continue in the same way. Continues asking questions. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? I love that God gives his answer to the question. And the same person he is interceding for, he is interceding for the offspring of the king of David. What man? Who can? One man. The God man. Look at this passage again. Who can live and never see death? Jesus saw death but for a moment, but it could not hold him because he can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol. The power of our God is greater than the power of death. And the answer to the psalmist's prayer here can be found in Jesus Christ, the only man who conquered death, the only man by his own power raised himself from the grave, the power of his spirit bringing him out of the grave. But we can see that the psalmist can't. So the psalmist continues in the lament here. Lord, where is your steadfast love, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Where is your steadfast love, O Lord? Where is your faithfulness? Because we know it never ceases. We know you aren't changing. But it sure feels like it. So the conundrum that the psalmist faced Many of us face more often than we'd like to admit. What do we do when we know God is faithful? Yet it seems like he's removed his favor. The psalmist looks around him and everything he's placed his hope in. The king on the throne, the walls of Jerusalem. They're in ruins. They're in shambles. They're shame. And I'll tell you, this is a good thing. If you're putting your confidence in anything beside the Lord whether it's a government, your health, your job, anything else, you'll begin to be a slave to the immediate. But we must remember that our God is unchanging. All this has not surprised him or caught him off guard. And any time these situations come up in your life, we must wrestle with these things honestly. Be honest like the psalmist is. When our theology and our reality seem at odds, when our faith and our circumstances clash. But be careful of being slaves to the present, forgetting the Lord's timeless faithfulness. And we're, when we're overcome by what we're facing. So we need to do what the psalmist does. We call out to God. We call out to him honestly. But do not, in the light of verses 38 through 52, forget 1 through 37. Do not, in the light of your disappointment, forget God's covenant faithfulness. Forget that he is a God who keeps his promises. A God who is abounding in steadfast love toward his people. A God who protects and provides for his people for all time. Because if you do what the psalmist does, 
You remind yourself of the promises of God. Preach the gospel promises to yourself. You will not remain in your disappointment and your fear for very long. But I digress because the psalmist is still in the middle of this. So as I remind us along the way, we're not going to lose and lose track and minimize what the psalmist is going through here. Verse 50. Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked and how I bear in my heart the insults of the many nations with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Well, we know that the son was mocked. He bear on his heart the insults of the many nations. All of us who would as soon reject him and kill him ourselves, he bore our griefs and our sorrows. Therefore, how will we expect any different? If the servant of the Lord and the suffering servant is mocked and hated, how can we expect to not be mocked and hated and insulted by his enemies for walking in the footsteps of the anointed one of God? They mocked his steps. If we follow him, we are to be mocked and insulted as well. And we have to remember here as we look back and keep reminding you when we read scripture, we can apply it to our lives, but it only goes so far. We're not Israel. Our earthly capital has not been overthrown. Our hope is not lost because we do have the risen Christ. Remember that Israel sees these covenant promises only in a, only in a literal sense. Only an anointed king on the present throne in Jerusalem. They don't have the benefit of our redemptive perspective. Knowing that the anointed king, the Christ, ruling over heaven and earth, reigns now and reigns forevermore. Because what the psalmist couldn't see, but we can see. In the fullness of time, the Father sent the Son, filled with the Spirit, to enact an eternal covenant. And so this psalm, and book three, ends on an uncertain note. God, it looks like you've forgotten your covenant. Yet, he is still praising rightly, giving God eternal worship. Blessed be the Lord forever. Even if I don't understand, even if I'm afraid right now, blessed are you, O Lord, forever. Even when we don't understand, let us praise him. Blessed are you forever. Amen and amen. Praise the Lord that... The lament of the psalmist is not the final word. That our story does not end where his does. And this is where we find ourselves. Fast forward several hundred years. Does God have an answer to the complaint of the psalmist? I will say he does. If you have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of Matthew. Ever wonder why Matthew is the first book in the New Testament? Ever wonder why as soon as you flip over from Malachi, you go right to the first page of Matthew. Well, the key is in the first line. And the key of the purpose of the book of Matthew is in the first verse. Matthew begins his gospel with these words. Hopefully some light bulbs will begin to go off as we read these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Many people ask me, why do we need genealogies? Why do we need all these names? Aha, I'm going to show you this morning. Matthew begins here, this is the purpose. To not just show that Jesus is the Son of God, which He is, but Matthew, being a Hebrew himself, 
wanted the Israelites to know that the promises from Abraham, that God would make him a father of many nations, that he would have children that went on forever, that he would have a land of his own, that they would go on forever, fulfilled in Christ. The promises to David, that he would have a son on the throne forever, fulfilled in Christ. Why is this genealogy important? Why all of these names? Look at verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14. Anything that are multiples of seven always mean perfect, mean complete. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. The perfect cycle of the beginning of a nation. The beginning of the king, the the kingly line, the tribe of Judah that would continue in the nation. 14 generations. And from David, the deportation of Babylon 14 generations. Deportation of Babylon. What happened when Babylon came? Overthrew Jerusalem. King was no longer on the throne. They put their own puppet king on the throne. The occasion for our psalm, maybe? The median point between David and the coming Messiah? When all seems to be lost, the 14 generations, there's a glimmer of doubt, or a lot of doubt, but a glimmer of hope because another 14 generations from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. You see how this is all connected? From when David, or excuse me, when God pulls Abraham out of paganism to David, the son on the throne, to the promised son, covenants with Abraham and David, seem like they're lost when Babylon comes, but they're both, all the promises fulfilled in the person and work of Christ. That is why the genealogy is important. Because if you are a Jew, and you're wondering, how can he be the Messiah? How can he fulfill all of this? This is what Matthew seeks to prove. For the Jews, this is rock-solid evidence because they knew their history. They knew their forefathers. And so, Matthew sets up the entire gospel by saying, what God has been doing all along now finds its fullness in Christ. Obviously, we're not going to go through the entire gospel of Matthew, but we are going to fast forward. Chapter 27, where we find the Passion Week, find Jesus on the cross, and we find the height of the enmity between the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the king on the cross. I want you to look at some of the details here, see if it refreshes your memory from just a few moments ago in Psalm 89. So in Matthew 27, look at verse 37. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, that was mocking to them, but that was prophetic. As Pilate said, I have put what I have put. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him. Remember Psalm 89. All of his neighbors scoffed at him, mocked him wagging their heads and saying, you would destroy the temple and rebuild it in in three days, save yourself. The temple of his body that was in ruins that we see in the psalmist prophetic speaking about Jerusalem being broken down, but it was the body of Jesus, who would one day be the true temple, would raise after three days. In Revelation, we see that Jesus is going to be a a, a temple that we will all dwell in as his saints. No need for a building because he is it. 
but they doubted and they mocked here at the foot of the cross. Verse 42, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Here's where it brings us all together. He is the king of Israel, mockingly. If they do not know the power of the words that they said, let him come down now from the cross and we will believe him. Sure you will. But he is the king of Israel. He was on the cross. You do not believe because you are not his. You reject him. They continue with the mocking. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. If he desires him, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. See the tone of Psalm 89 coming out with him on the cross. All the, the doubts and accusations that the psalmist levies against God, Israel, are hurling at their king, their true king on the cross. Now from the sixth hour, pick up in verse 45, there was darkness over the land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cast off and rejected. Full measure of wrath poured out on him. The true king of Israel reviled on the cross. This is where we find ourselves this morning. If that's the end, we have nothing to celebrate. If that's the end, God is a liar. If that's the end, we should not trust anything he has to say. If Jesus does not raise from the grave, all the promises of God and the hope of his people are for nothing. But we know that's not the end of the story. And that's what we celebrate. We know that the promises of God are confirmed because he raised his life from Sheol. He tasted death, but did not remain there. He rose again in verse, or excuse me, in chapter 28. We see the resurrection and his disciples are just stopped in their tracks in awe. Because even though he, he prophesied many times, they still didn't believe. They were still weak in faith. Their curse is our curse. We are faithless people. Thankfully, we serve a faithful God. That even when our faith is weak, he sent his son. So that he might unite us to himself. That we might be a faithful people. That we might have faith because of what he has done for us. Because of the faith that he has given us. So I want to look at one last passage here. Most of us know this is the Great Commission. The end of Matthew's Gospel. But I want us to think about something for a moment. The word mission. means to have a co-mission. Having an assignment that agrees with the one who's sending you. I want you to see all the kingly language here. The Great Commission is not just a call for evangelism, which it is. It's not just a call for discipleship, which it is. But it's a proclamation from the risen king to his subjects, to his servants, to sons. I have all authority. I am sending you out. I can send you out because I have authority. A king, as we've looked at before in the Psalms. A king, he has land, he has dominion, and he has subjects. But he also has the authority to send them out. This is the true king of Israel who is giving marching orders to his servants, to the citizens of his kingdom. And I want you to read it as that. Read it as the fulfillment of the promises to David. 
Read it as the king who will sit on the throne forever. This is who we serve. This is who we follow. Picking up in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. Don't skip over that. Some say Jesus never claimed to be God. But if someone bows down and worships you and you don't stop them immediately, that is blasphemy. You deserve to die. They worshiped him because he is worthy of worship. Because he is God in the flesh. Some of them doubted, as always, as did the psalmist, as do we. Jesus came and said to them, this is kingly language. This is a kingly charge. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am sovereign ruler. The ancient of days gave to the son of man power and dominion forever. This is not just an earthly kingship. All authority in heaven and on earth. Everything is in his control. He is the sovereign ruler. And I am commissioning you. I am sending you out for the sake of my crown. Everything you do should be in agreement with your king. And I have appointed authority to you. Go, therefore, this is commissioning authority language, the king directing his subjects, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. This is not just some religious suggestion. This is an order from our king. We are ambassadors for his kingdom. And we stand firmly on the one who conquered the grave. The same power that raised Jesus Christ from the grave raises us to new life and is the promise to whoever will believe in him. That they have eternal life. This is what we are called to do. This is who we are. If you don't want to believe, if you don't want to submit. It does not make him any less king. But it does make you under the wrath that he took on behalf of those who trust in him. So I urge you, if you are his, act like it. Stand up firmly on the finished work of Jesus Christ. Know that all the promises of God find their yes in him and we can stand boldly in him. And if you are not his, turn now, repent, believe in him. Because if you do, this final promise is yours. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This king who sends us out is also God who keeps his promises forever. Only an eternal God can say, I am with you always. And through this new covenant written in his blood, I am with you always to the end of the age. When this heaven and this earth pass away, I will still be with you. I will still hold you in my mighty right hand. This new covenant, his life given for our new life, his blood shed for the atonement of our sins, his resurrection that we might never see death. The same one who did all that says, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you always to the end of the age. So when we doubt, when we fear, when we question, remember those words. Preach the gospel to yourself. A couple final thoughts. 
We are people who are obsessed with having the answers. Google is a blessing and a curse. So anything is right there at your fingertips, but it makes us think that we can figure out anything at any time. And we hate the idea that we're not let in on something. We hate the idea that someone may not have given us the answers, but we impose that on God as well. God, how dare you not include me in your plans? How could you not fill me in? I deserve to know everything you know. And in that way, our sin is the sin of Adam and Eve. Wanting to be like God. Wanting to know the end from the beginning. But if the Lord of all creation filled us in, we wouldn't need to trust him. If he filled us in, we would walk by sight and not by faith. But as we see God's faithful promises to David throughout the ages, throughout the centuries, it proves that he can be trusted and that his plan is perfect. Because if God did not work his plan out this way, we would neither have Christ nor salvation. So we must praise God for every step of his plan. And so this morning, just on a real down to earth level, if your feelings contradict your faith, if your feelings contradict God's promises, I can tell you which one is lying. Preach God's promises to your feelings. Preach God's promises to your doubt. Wrestle with him honestly, but go to God's word. Because by faith, we trust that the promised offspring of David, the risen Christ, has been given all authority because his word is good. We can trust his promises. We know that he will be with us to the end of the age. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these promises. Thank you that you are a God who before time and space saw everything. Saw our sin, saw our rejection of you, but you had a plan and your plan is perfect. Thank you for sending your son to fulfill all of this. Thank you for his purpose, for his perfect life. Thank you for his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. That we might be justified, sanctified, and glorified in him. That the blood of his covenant would perfect us. And we would take on his righteousness because he has taken on our sin. Lord, we praise you for this. And this we celebrate. We are a people whose God is not dead. He is alive. We praise you, the living God, the true and living God, the great I am. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, David. The God who took on flesh, dwelt among us, that we might live forever and dwell with him. It is in his name we pray. Amen. Just a real quick announcement. Uh, our time on Zoom, as we've said before, is not ideal. And the moment we can meet back together, we will. But until that time, uh, we will do something a little bit different. We'll always teach from the scriptures verse by verse in an exegetical manner. Uh, but we're not going to begin a new book series until we can meet together. So what we will do in the interim is we're going to spend some time in selective scriptures dealing with the nature of the church. And so I think this is a good question for us right now. And Pastor Deshaun and I had a great conversation this week about what is most needed. Because I think right now people are asking questions and questioning the very nature of the church. 
And for many people whose, whose idea of the church is, is Sunday only, their entire worlds have been rocked, and it should be. So this is a good time for us to think about what do the scriptures say about the church and the nature of the church. And so we're going to look at these passages. We'll, we'll do one every week until we can meet together again. And when we do meet together again, we're going to begin the gospel of Mark. So next week, we're going to deal with the elephant in, in the room, the gathering of the body. So we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10 from verse 19 to verse 25. And uh, so I want you to read ahead. That'll be in the email of this this week. And uh, let's think through and wrestle through the scriptures and and what do we do when our concept of the church and gathering is challenged or uh, is is uh, changed for a time? Does it change the nature of the church? Um, so I want us to be rooted in that. And I want you to read ahead. And but that is not to minimize the the message and distract us. Remember. Christ is our Lord, our King. He is risen. He is reigning. He is alive. Let us sing and close in praise. Amen.